Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is John Logan. He is a professor of labor and employment studies in the College of Business at San Francisco State University. He has published widely on labor management relations, employer opposition to unionization, and labor law in the United States and globally. He will be talking with us about the recent organizing victory for labor, and that is the Amazon Labor Union. I'm joined by 12 of my classmates. Good morning. I'm in uh, Pasadena, California, and uh, uh, an environmental lawyer, and my dad was a union organizer back in the 1930s. Uh, Alden. I'm in uh, a little bit north of Jerry. I'm in near San Francisco, uh, just south of San Francisco and San Mateo. Uh, and my union story was I was uh, getting a Master of Arts and teaching at Johns Hopkins, and uh, teachers went on strike. I went on strike and got arrested. And my <laughs> girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, learned about this on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. <laughs> okay, right, right. Mason. Yeah, I'm uh, calling from Florida, where it's thunder and lightning, which I hope is the effort of a just God to be uh, smiting our governor. <laughs> right, right. But George. Oh, I'm in Ann Arbor, as uh, I think John indicated a few minutes ago. I <clears throat> have now been here for almost six months, so I'm starting to feel like a Michigander again. <laughs> okay, Peter. I'm an, I'm an editor and writer, and I'm up in the northern tip of New Hampshire, near almost to Canada. Oh. So it stopped oh. snowing here anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> David. Uh, I live in Philadelphia, grew up in South America, and my, my touch of the labor union was running, be, being the, the, the management guy in the public television station that I worked for when we negotiated with the union, with the IBEW. Okay, John. Hi, uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I, I was a shop steward in the newspaper guild. And I also used to, in Chicago, I used to uh, contribute to a publication called um, Labor Today. Labor Today was part of the Trade Unionists for Action and democracy in uh, Chicago back in the 60s, 70s. Okay. Nick. Nick Bancroft. I'm uh, about five miles south of where our guest is uh, currently sitting. Um, <clears throat> so he knows what the weather is like. Um, uh, uh, graduated from uh, Harvard with these guys, Harvard Business School, Peace Corps, India, and uh, not really interested in labor unions, but as a government major, always been interested in how uh, in many countries um, there's a party, a labor party, and there never has been a, a, a very influential labor party in this country. Uh, okay. Hamp. Hamp Powell, uh, Nashville, 
clinical psychologist. I'm in, uh, still in practice, and I'm just off of trying to address some very difficult uh, stuff with, with, with somebody who's handled my administrative and uh, billing. Marcy. Um, I'm living in New York City and still working. Before I started real work, I was getting an MA in economics part-time and did research for the labor secretary of the NAACP on a book he was writing on Blacks and Organized Labor. I did A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Workers. Okay. And for most of my life since then, my work life, I've been um, uh, waging David against Goliath battles over the use of public resources and public policies and have won a few um, and am overwhelmed by the amount of work it takes and took the Amazon workers to, uh, to have a chance of prevailing the amount of unpaid labor. Mm -hmm. David. Well, I'm uh, from my grandparents were active. My grandmother was in the ILGWU and my grandfather was in the machinists uh, union all their lives. Um, yeah. I, uh, Back long ago, I was in various unions, uh, and uh, mostly uh, the 15 years I spent at the University of Minnesota, we tried to get a, a faculty union there. In Minnesota, by the way, the Democratic Party is known um, somewhat hypocritically as the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Um, and... Uh, uh, finally, I was a member I, I, uh, of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, so that's my uh, union background. Our guest is uh, John Logan from uh, uh, San, Fran, uh, San Francisco State. Welcome and uh, thank you for coming on. And were you surprised by the uh, Amazon situation? I was amazed. <laughs> Anyway, I've been studying labor unions for, you know, I finished my PhD approximately 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago. So I've had like, you know, I was a postdoc at UCLA, but then I had 10 years at LSE and now more or less 10 years at San Francisco State. And, you know, a lot of that time I've been studying union decline and I've been studying employer opposition to unions, you know, what big companies like Amazon, and Starbucks and Walmart do in order to keep unions out, uh, not just in the United States, but you know, as part of an Amazon project, I've actually been to at least uh, probably a dozen countries and interviewed Amazon workers and union officials. You know, trying to organize at Amazon and in Poland or the Czech Republic or Romania or you know a bunch of other countries. Um, and, you know, th th this victory was a really amazing thing. So I just give you the background. I mean, I'm sure maybe people have read a few news stories, but there were a few really, really amazing things about this. I mean, first, you know, uh, if you study labor in the United States, you just get used to defeat. You know, unions don't win. They lose. They, they always lose. And they always lose in really big elections in the private sector. Um, it's really, really difficult to organize new unions in the United States, primarily for two reasons, I would say. Uh, 
the legal protection to choose a union in the United States is actually quite weak compared with most rich democracies. I mean, you know, US law for a variety of reasons just allows corporations to do more uh, within the law to oppose unionization than would be allowed in say France or Germany or Sweden or the United Kingdom or even in Canada. And the second is that employers are just uh, more resistant to unionization in the United States. And it's kind of always been this way, you know? I mean, since the Carnegie Steel Company and the Rockefeller and, you know, all of those guys. And we can talk about, you know, I, I, I could offer a sort of historical explanation as to why I think that's the case. But these are the two things that unions face in the United States, sort of like weak legal protection and strong employer opposition. And, you know, sure, structural changes in the economy have made it more difficult for unions. You know, all sorts of new employment relationships, you know, the emergence of gig work and things like that, make it a far more challenging economic environment for unions. But most of these changes have happened everywhere. And unions, you know, both historically and in the present day are weaker in the United States than they are in almost any other rich democracy. Um, so say you, you get used to losing. You, and you particularly get used to losing uh, when you're trying to organize a really big facility. This uh, so-called JFK-8 is the name given to the Staten Island Amazon warehouse. It had over 8,000 workers in it. By, by the, the standard of union elections, that's absolutely enormous. Unions win elections of typically of 50 you know, units where there's 50 or fewer employees. Uh, that's where they win. They win a few where there's hundreds. They almost win none where there are thousands of employees. You really have to go back almost to like December of 2008. You know, they won a big uh, union election at Smithfield, uh, the Smithfield um, meat plant in North Carolina. And they only actually won because President Obama, who had, well, he had not been inaugurated, but he had won the presidential election, actually, you know, spoke out strongly in favor of unionization. And that kind of pushed them over the line. But that was the result of a 16-year campaign to organize. They've been trying to form a union there for 16 years. At Amazon, Unions have always lost in the United States. I mean, Amazon, as you know, probably was formed in uh, Seattle in 1994. And unions tried, you know, the Communication Workers of America tried to organize call centers around 2000. United Food and Commercial Workers tried to organize warehouses around the same time. Over the years have been, you know, little attempts to organize Amazon. Amazon has always crushed the unions every time. So the Amazon labor union is not affiliated with any big union. Uh, it's not part of the FLCIO, it's not part of the Teamsters, not part of United Food and Commercial Workers, not part of SEIU. It is totally new standalone union that was formed, you know, as the New York Times story explains, but, you know, by Christian Smalls was a, um, a former rapper, a very smart young black guy 
who wanted a career in Amazon. Uh, he'd been there for a number of years. He wanted to move up in management. He wanted to stick around. But during the pandemic, he got you know, uh, concerned about the lack of adequate COVID safety precautions. And he started to organize and to protest against those. And he was fired. Um, and he very quickly became the public face of the union campaign to organize at Staten Island. Him and his best friend, Derek Palmer, who was another uh, Amazon worker who still works in the warehouse. And immediately Amazon, uh, up at the very high levels of management, general counsel of Amazon uh, inadvertently sent round an email to hundreds of people where they described Christian Smalls as not smart and not articulate. And I, I can tell you, having appeared on several shows with him, <laughs> he is very smart and he's also quite articulate. And he's gotten a lot better during the campaign too. He was excellent in the, the last thing I did with him a few days ago. Um, but no one expected them to win. Uh, they didn't have any big union. They didn't have money. They didn't have organizers. They didn't have lawyers. They had, they raised money through a GoFundMe campaign they raised, you know, hundred and something thousand, less than $200,000 for this union campaign. Amazon has spent tens of millions, this is not hyperbole, in direct, you know, has to file with the Department of Labor for the costs involved in the consultants, the outside consultants that it hires who engage in what we call direct persuader activity if they talk face to face with the employees. So Amazon spent millions and millions trying to oppose them. They had almost nothing in terms of money uh, and they won. It was a new union, less than two years old, say no experienced organizers, no experienced lawyers. Um, and they did it for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, it would have been unimaginable for them or for any other union to win at Amazon two or three years ago. But something has sort of fundamentally changed in the labor landscape uh, during the pandemic. I, I always sort of say, you know, the American labor movement's like a secondary institution. It doesn't have the power to shape its own environment, but it does have the ability to respond appropriately to to opportunities are offered to it by changes in the larger environment. The pandemic has changed something. You know, if you listen to Amazon workers, if you listen to Starbucks workers, what they're saying, and you know, I know this is a generalization, but you hear it time after time after time. We haven't been treated with respect. We haven't been rewarded adequately. And, you know, we, we want a voice over our own working conditions. So the Amazon labor union, um, the other, I, I, I will wrap up fairly quickly. Uh, the other noticeable thing about this campaign and also the Starbucks campaign is all of these campaigns are being led <coughs> by really young workers. The average age of the worker organizer didn't have any professional outside organizers at Amazon. They had young workers who worked within the warehouse, many of whom were political. You know, they had been politicized by their participation in Black Lives Matter, in Bernie Sanders uh, presidential campaigns, some of them in Democratic Socialists of America, other leftist organizations. 
but they were 26 years old and you know they had all sorts of different you know backgrounds you know they reflected the racial and demographic um, makeup of the workforce you know they were spanish speaking some of them were african nationals a lot of them were black workers uh, but they went they they you know they were totally across the board but they they were younger, young, committed organizers. And they said, what we did was we talked to absolutely everyone. Unions don't have a legal right of access to the workplace in the United States. And, and again, this is different from other countries I know about. It's one of the things that makes organizing so challenging in the US. Um, but they, they're workers, you know, they, they, they're already in the, the warehouse. So the fact that the campaign was led by these amateur worker organizers meant that they had the ability to stick around after their shifts and just talk to their co-workers, explain to them, you know, say to, and they, they were able to talk with a sort of powerful authenticity because, you know, they too were workers in the warehouse and they could say, we know what it's like to work in this warehouse and not be treated with respect. And if you join with us in the Amazon Labor Union, if you get a seat at the bargaining table, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. You know, we'll make sure that you get rewarded adequately for all of the service that you've provided for Amazon during the pandemic, when the company has made tens of billions in excess profits, you know, even over and above what it was making prior to the pandemic. We'll make sure that you get treated with respect. Um, you know, one of the issues, uh, big issues, was job security. Amazon, there's just unbelievable workers' uh, levels of worker churn. Uh, according to the New York Times, 150% per annum in a lot of the Amazon warehouses. Essentially means um, they're hiring an entirely new workforce every eight or nine months. And, you know, a lot of the workers are leaving voluntarily because what they find is that, you know, there's this sort of really punishing physical and psychological pace of work. Uh, you know, there's all the, the, the production targets are, are, are very exacting. They have this thing called time off task. You know, you're constantly monitored, even, you know, the amount of time you use to go to the bathroom and, and so on. So they have all of these individual grievances, but the campaign was about more than the individual things. And so it was just sort of this feeling that they weren't being treated with respect by Amazon. Why I think it's significant is that there is, you know, having followed these things for you know, 20 plus years, which I know is not you know, in the grand scheme of things that long, but you know, there's this disconnect there's this, you know, if you if you follow the national trends and union density and union membership, you know, they go down year after year after year. And we know why that's happening. You know, just in order to stay still, workers, uh, unions have to organize several hundred thousand new workers every year. But, you know, union jobs are lost every year through attrition. Union members retire. Um, but it's not because workers don't want unions. I mean, the best evidence that we have suggests that a lot of them do. The so-called representation gap, you know, the gap between the workers who say they would like union representation and those that actually have it is much larger 
in the United States than it is in any other developed democracy. And again, this is not just me saying this. I mean, the premier, new preeminent labor scholar in the country is a guy called Tom Culkin, who's a professor of management at MIT. And he published a, an article a couple of years ago about you know, employee voice, which is based on a very large national survey that he estimated that you know, 49% of non-union workers in the United States say they would like union representation, but they can't get it because of the way the, 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 the system currently operates. So, it, and Gallup polls too. I mean, Gallup polls, you know, the last year's Gallup poll, every year they measure un, uh, public approval rates of unions. Last year was the highest public approval rates, uh, basically 70% amongst all Americans, highest rates since 1965, but almost 80% amongst young Americans. And you don't really get any higher than that. You know, you can't really get like 100%. I mean, really difficult even to get like 90%. So 80% is almost about as high as you can get. But young workers have very, very low rates of union membership. Although they say, you know, at record levels, they approve of unions. Why that is, is that young workers disproportionately work in young workplaces and young workplaces are overwhelmingly non-union. So they work at places like Starbucks and all of those places are non-union and that's beginning to change. So I'll just finish on that. I mean, the interesting thing about Amazon to me and Starbucks is there's now this sort of disconnect, you say, between the national union trends, national union density, which continues to decline year after year and probably will continue unless we get labor law reform and you know, get, get stronger legal protections for the right to choose a union. And we're not getting that at the moment. You know, even with the most pro-union president in history, you know, the, the so-called PRO Act, Protecting the Right to Organize Act, is stalled in the Senate, even Build Back Better, um, which has uh, labor law provisions within it, is not going anywhere at the moment. So we're not gonna get labor law reform, but what we have instead is this incredible energy and optimism, you know, particularly amongst young workers. And, you know, that, you know, as I taught for 10 years at London School of Economics, a lot of my economist friends would say, well, you know, if something can't be quantified, it's not real. You know, quantification leads to science, everything else leads to idle chit chat or, you know, postmodern nihilism or whatever it is they believe. Um, and, and union decline can be quantified. I mean, we do it year after year. This, what I'm talking about, this sort of change in the labor landscape, this sort of feeling of optimism and, you know, inspiration that young workers are taking from Amazon and Starbucks. That's not easy to quantify, but I think it is real. Um, so, uh, the, and, and the point I'll finish on, you know, if I, I've always believed that if there's any hope of, of rebuilding the labor movement in the United States, it, it's going to have to be campaigns like Starbucks and like Amazon that are largely based on what I would call a, a worker-led process of self-organization. 
it, it's not, they're not top-down union campaigns. There's no union that's investing millions of dollars in trying to organize Starbucks or trying to organize Amazon at Staten Island. Uh, that's not why the campaigns are successful. The campaigns are, are successful because they're these young politicized workers who are taking the lead and talking to workers who have been changed as a result of working through the pandemic. And so, and it does have the potential to spread like wildfire. It may not do. All of this sort of new optimism might just go up in a puff of smoke. We don't know what the legacy of it is going to be. But because people have a different relationship, a more direct relationship with Amazon and Starbucks than the American public ever had with General Motors or Ford in the 1930s and 1940s, um, you know, these companies are, are subjected to the public gaze in a way that was never true before. So these organizing campaigns, Amazon you know, in particular, the Amazon labor union victory, but also at Starbucks, they generate the most amazing media coverage and social media coverage. And so people hear about them and young people hear about them, but the American public also is more engaged with the issues now, I mean, it may not seem that way to you, but believe me, it, it actually is true. You know, any time that has been true for decades and decades and decades, people are actually paying attention to the issues. And this is the way, only way I also think we will ever get labor law reform because the obstacle, you know, the number one obstacle is the strength of the business lobby that opposes it. But the number two obstacle is that people don't understand how the laws function. They don't understand them, they don't care about them, and the labor movements always lacked a language with which to explain it to them. Why is this important? Why should you care? The Amazon campaign and the Starbucks campaign have provided that opportunity. So there's now at least the possibility of a national debate about around the need for stronger labor rights, stronger labor protections in the United States. And that, I think, is the only way ultimately you will get labor law reform, because it's not the kind of issue you can push through the Senate while no one is looking. You know, the, the business lobby will always be too powerful to defeat whatever, you know, support the unions have in the Senate and in Congress. And even although Starbucks and Amazon are great, these 50% of non-union workers who say they would like union membership are realistically never going to get it unless we get stronger legal protection. Also, I, I might have mentioned it, sorry, very quick. You, yesterday, MIT graduate students, this is always another one of the areas where we've seen a great increase in unionization. You know, Harvard, uh, you know, at um, Columbia, NYU, um, MIT graduate students voted um, by more than two to one to form a union. And it's the, the biggest uh, private sector union election in Massachusetts this year. So, um, you know, it all helps. Yeah. They, uh, it, but it's young people again. Right. Uh, Jerry. Yes. Uh, and John, maybe because my dad was doing organizing back in the 30s, I always thought that that was kind of the height of the union participation, yeah. but I was dead wrong. It was actually 1979 where almost 30% of the workforce was unionized. Yeah. And yet today it's down to 10%. Yes. Why such a precipitous decline over a relatively few decades? Right. 
Well, a large part of it is structural changes in the economy that, you know, so many jobs have been lost in heavily unionized mass production sector. But if you look at the auto industry, um, you know, when you're talking about 1979, I think the UAW, which was the, you know, the quintessential new, new union, industrial union of the CIO, had, I think, 1.9 million members in 1979. It's now down to about, uh, it's, I think, about four or 500,000. And, wow. and um, it's not because auto jobs have been lost. I mean, there's still a lot of auto jobs in the country. But it's partly because of outsourcing. You know, the big three outsourced a lot of these jobs to smaller non-union, uh, the parts plants, to smaller non-union companies. And then, you know, we had a great influx of um, so-called foreign auto transplants, uh, BMW in South Carolina, um, uh, Mercedes-Benz in Alabama, um, uh, Volkswagen in Tennessee, um, uh, you know, I could go on Honda in Ohio, uh, and every one of them is non-union. And, and Nissan in Mississippi, uh, that was the last big union election that failed. Every time the UAW has tried to organize uh, one of those foreign auto transplants, it's failed, uh, usually been beaten quite badly. And um, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, it's very difficult to win union elections in the South. I mean, that's just a, a fact. You know, uh, you know, Amazon in Staten Island was a truly magnificent achievement for that, you know, upstart union. Uh, but Staten Island is a little bit easier than organizing Alaba uh, Amazon in Alabama. I mean, that, that, that's just the reality. Um, so a lot of these new foreign auto transplants, you know, they came to the South. You know, some people, you know, the Southern Republicans say they came there because of the right to work laws. I think they really went there because of the cheaper wages, you know, uh, I mean, which obviously right to work and, you know, lack of strong unions in the South uh, in, in, in part explains the, the lower wage rates. But anyway, so a lot of them are located in south, uh, uh, states where unions are, are very weak. Um, you know, so there have just been these structural changes. But as I said, the structural changes have taken place in many different countries. U.S. and Britain have lost more of their manufacturing economy than, than say, Germany or Japan. But it's still, I mean, the problem in the U.S. is that it's so, so difficult to form new unions. I mean, every year, as you know, the economy loses hundreds of thousands of jobs and creates hundreds of thousands of jobs. So, you know, you need to be able to organize at the Amazons, at the Walmarts, at the Starbucks, you know, in order to, to maintain anything like the union density that you had in the late 1970s. So, um, you know, it's a complicated story. I mean, as you know, public sector is a, a different, uh, you know, it's mostly down to state politics, you know, so in New York, in California, we have pretty strong public sector unions, you know, in teachers and government workers, in many places in the South, uh, and in the Midwest too now, 
you, you don't even have the right of collective bargaining for public sector workers. So that, that, that's mostly a, a you know, directly political issue to do with state politics. Mm-hmm. But, sorry, George. George. John, what will be the practical, immediate practical consequences yeah. for Amazon and for the workers? Right. So, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, the workers have a set of demands and, you know, some people look at them and say, you're never going to get, you know, they want $30 an hour minimum wage. But, you know, it's actually not so outlandish. Staten Island, you know, that part of the country, as you know, the cost of living is extremely high. And, you know, Amazon has made such enormous profits during the pandemic. You know, 30 bucks an hour is something that, you know, the company could well afford. I'm not saying they're going to get it, but, you know, they have a, a, a bunch of other demands to do with job security, to do with benefits, to do with the work process itself, etc. So Amazon will try and stall and stall and delay and delay and delay, you know, hoping that the union becomes discouraged, hoping that, hoping that pro-union workers leave the workplace, hoping that, you know, they just give up hope um, uh, and, you know, are prepared to settle for a weak contract or maybe never get one at all. So that, that you know, that's what might happen in Staten Island. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, that's what often does happen at big corporations who are very anti-union, but normally it happens in the shadows. And whatever happens in the, at Amazon is not going to be happening in the shadows. You know, Amazon is going to be subjected to like a, an, an extraordinary degree of both public uh, and political scrutiny. You know, the Biden administration, the National Labor Relations Board, local and uh, national politicians are going to be watching Amazon every step of the way to see if, you know, if it is actively trying to undermine the, the Amazon labor union during the bargaining process and the public too. As I said, you know, Amazon is subjected to public gaze in ways almost no other company is. And, you know, there will be, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal will be covering this story, you know, week after week after week. Uh, but the other thing, you know, what does it mean for the company and the workers? Well, I, I think actually the bigger issue is, um, does it, you know, Christian Smalls, the, the president, said that he had already been contacted two days ago by workers at 50 other Amazon warehouses around the country saying they want to form a union. How do they do it? You know, mm-hmm. tell us what you did because we want to do it, too. And so this is what Amazon's afraid of. Um, you know, if you look at what happens at Starbucks, Starbucks, of course, stores are tiny, tiny, tiny compared with Amazon warehouses. But no one expected the Starbucks union campaign to take off in the way that it has. You know, it started with three union elections in Buffalo last December. It's now spread to almost 200 stores nationwide. They've only conducted 11 elections so far, but the union has won 10 out of 11. And it's won a lot of them, like, you know, by a landslide. At the Seattle store, which is the closest one to uh, uh, Starbucks corporate headquarters, the uh, the company did not get a single vote, uh, you know, at that union election. So Amazon's fear is, you know, this thing will take on a momentum of its own that, you know, 
the, the, the victory of Staten Island will inspire other sort of budding Chris Smalls out there to think, you know, they took a risk and it paid off for them. So we can do the same in our warehouse. And I think Amazon, you know, of course, prides itself on being a, you know, a very innovative company with super smart people. And it is, you know, there's absolutely no question about that. And so, you know, it made, you know, some quite bad mistakes during the anti-union campaign at Staten Island. I would expect Amazon to learn from its mistakes, you know, just as the you know, same way that I would expect, you know, the, the would-be Christian Smalls and other warehouses to learn from the experience of the Amazon labor union. And I don't think you can just hope to replicate, you know, um, the success of the Amazon labor union. I mean, it's a cliche, but, you know, you only get one first time. And, you know, that, that, I mean, it's not just that circumstances will be different in other places, but the circumstances are partly changed because of the success of the Amazon labor union. Because they won, that by itself means that the environment is now different. Theoretically, it would be easier to organize someone like the uh, Amazon workers, uh, all of whom are in a huge warehouse in Staten Island, than it would be uh, Uber drivers and people like that. And yet, from what I read, the turnover at those big plants is something like 100 to 130 percent a yeah. year employee yeah. turnover. Yep. Uh, how do you deal with that difficulty? Yeah, no, that's an enormous difficulty. And you know, just I, I mean, one boring part of it, but it really gets to what you're saying in a way. You know, the, the sort of conventional wisdom in union organizing campaigns, you can uh, trigger. And in order to get a National Labor Relations Board election, you have to get signed authorization cards from 30% of the workforce saying, we want an election. And then that triggers the election process. But union organizers, excuse me, traditionally have said, don't ever file with 30% because you'll get crushed in the election. You need at least 70 or 80% because you know, by the time you go through a brutal anti-union campaign run by Amazon or run by Walmart or whoever, you can have a lot of attrition. So you know, you're going to need that cushion. But you know, to their, <laughs> their enormous credit, the Amazon labor union realized that doesn't apply at Amazon with the huge turnover. First, because as you said, with like 130, 150% turnover per annum, it's virtually impossible to get to 70 80, to 80%. But they said that doesn't matter because even if that were possible, and I don't think it is, um, by the time you actually got to the vote, half of those people wouldn't be employed anymore and they wouldn't be eligible to vote in the election. So this idea that you need 70 to 80% signed cards, you know, throw all of that logic out the window at Amazon. They said, let's just get, you know, let's file with the bare minimum. If we manage to get 30, that will be a great achievement. And then give us an election because we think if we have an election, we, will, we can win because our arguments will resonate with the workers. But as you said, I mean, that traditionally, that is the, the thing that Amazon has used. I mean, 
I don't mean it, this is the reason it does it. The reason it does it is it's just built into the business model. You know, workers are disposable. You know, I mean, that's the way that Amazon operates. Prior to, to these two elections we had just recently, that has been the thing that basically has stopped unions even getting to the 30%, you know, to trigger an election because the turnover is just so rapid. They can't even get, you know, that, that level of, you know, because they submit these cards and then Amazon challenges the cards and says, that person doesn't work here, that person doesn't work here, that, you know, so... It's incredibly difficult, yeah. David. Uh, winning an election is one thing, negotiating a contract is another. Can you talk yeah. a bit about that, what that yeah. process is and what we should be looking out at? Right. You no, know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, winning a contract is really important because even as, you know, I am thinking, even if you're thinking primarily about, you know, what kind of message and what kind of inspiration does this provide to, you know, potential Chris Malls and potential union organizers in Chicago or Sacramento or Los Angeles? You know, the thing that would provide the greatest boost to future organizing at Amazon is to get a really good first contract that improved pay, improved right. working conditions. And you know, there have been studies. I mean, I actually sent the figures to an Associated Press uh, reporter yesterday who had asked me for them. The, the mean length of time to negotiate a first contract um, in the warehouse and logistics industry is, I, I, I remember it was like 360 days. It's a really long time. And often it's longer than that. You know, it can take 18 months. It can take two years. And as I said, you would expect Amazon to try to drag the process out for as long as possible. Amazon has already challenged the result of the election. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to bore you with this. You know, either party, the company or the union, can challenge an election result because of what it calls objectionable conduct that raised to the level of altering the result of the election. The trouble for Amazon is, you know, it's complaining about actually about the conduct of both the Amazon Labor Union and the Biden NLRB. Uh, but the Amazon Labor Union doesn't have any coercive power over the employees. You know, it doesn't have the ability to fire and hire and promote and reprimand the way the company does. So I, I don't think it's ever going to be able to make that case. But by filing the objection, we'll and you know, from Amazon's perspective, slow down the entire process. So, yeah, but again, what I would say is, uh, you know, normally companies try to drag these things out for as long as possible. And I've no doubt that Amazon, you know, Amazon has the best lawyers. It has like, you know, the, you know, just unlimited resources almost with which to try to, you know, it, it, it's not invincible. Amazon Labor Union showed it's not invincible, but it is absolutely relentless, you know, and it just never gives up, you know. And so, but as I said, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be different this time. I mean, I, I may be, you know, forced to eat those words, but I think, you know, the fact that Amazon is going to be under such incredibly close scrutiny politically and publicly will put more pressure on the company to negotiate in good faith in an expedited way. 
But, you know, starting wages can be 15, 16, 17 bucks an hour. And uh, that, that's not bad. The problem is, or one of the you know, many problems, is that if you're actually one of the workers who sticks around for two or three or four years, and a lot of them don't, as we said, there's not that much advancement. So after three years, after four years, you're not earning an awful lot more than you were earning when you came in. And you know that that's a big uh, you know it's always been a major complaint amongst Amazon workers that they just don't see opportunities for advancement. So I think you know there are very meaningful things that they could achieve in a first contract. Um, how long it will take, and whether or not they will achieve those things, you know, you're right. John, that's a really John let me ask you this: I mean, given how much profit the yeah the company. Amazon is has made as a company, I mean. What is their fear in terms of how much the union will cut into that profit? Right, right. Well, it's a really good question. Honestly, I would say, yeah, of course, it's always about money. But with Amazon, it's even more about control. You know, Amazon is just one of these companies where I think like opposition to unions is really built into the DNA of the company. You know, it, it says, it thinks, you know, our company, and it's true, of course, you know, the tech at Amazon, everything is amazing. And it says, you know, we're based on, you know, rapid and, you know, creative innovation and the ability to move quickly. And unions are just antithetical to, you know, all of that. You know, they're all about rigid work rules. They're all about, you know, we don't share. So it's about, you know, an absolute commitment to unilateral control of the workplace. And it's not that Amazon is like this sort of like, you know, far-right Republican company. We know that's not true. Same with Starbucks. And, you know, the thing about companies like Starbucks and Amazon is, you know, they identify with a lot of liberal values. Uh, you know, they support a lot of liberal political causes. The, if you ask them, and in fact, you know, this has um, been, been documented, they would probably say, Unions are fine for auto plants. Unions are fine for coal mines, but not at Amazon, not at Starbucks, you know? And so, you know, the economics is a question and say that partly depends on whether or not, you know, this is able to spread to a bunch of other Amazon warehouses, you know, the way that the Starbucks campaign has spread very quickly. If it's only, if it's only ever one warehouse in Staten Island that gets a union, then it's, you know, almost insignificant. Uh, the, the, the money is important because, you know, if all of a sudden you had, you know, you know, 50 or 100 Amazon facilities bargaining, you know, for $30 an hour starting wages, you know, that, that, that would be, you know, something that the company would do everything in its power to try to resist. But... I honestly do think it's much more about the control than it is about the money. Now, the two things obviously are connected. They're not entirely separate, but that's, that's how I think they view it. They have a creativity uh, mythos. Yeah, you come work for us because would a worker at a GM plant be able to put the equivalent of his own little design on the top of a coffee cup in the foam? Mm -hmm. uh, no, we have creativity here and yeah. you can express yourself. Right. Where right. that stupid uh, on the line worker, he could never do that to a fender. 
He's got to yeah. make it that vendor. So if they all, we feel so good and we're making yeah. $30 an hour. Yeah. We'll, never yeah. Get married. well, you know, one of my pitches for the union would be that, you know, if you listen and if you watch the Amazon labor union campaign, they have a lot of incredibly smart people working in that warehouse. If they were to give them a seat at the bargaining table, and if they were to have a cooperative and productive relationship with the union, it would benefit the company, not just the workers, because they would have more committed employees, they would have more productive employees, they would have employees who would stick around for longer and wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have like this 150% turnover per annum. And ultimately, you would have a more productive and a more profitable company, not a less profitable company. You know, it's interesting that for the white collar workers, you know, we always think of Seattle as being like, you know, but, you know, now, of course, that's, you know, we have HQ2 in, where is it, you know, um, in Alexandria or Crystal City or, you know, like in the DC metropolitan area. Uh, but, you know, there are tech, you know, quite, you know, Boston has a ton of Amazon workers and it's expanding all of the time. And Amazon raised the wages uh, about a month ago for those workers. It, it raised the base pay. I'd never seen anything like it. it raised the base pay from 150,000 a year to 350,000 a year. Now, it didn't produce uh, figures on how many workers would be getting that new 300, but you know, I, I think actually quite a lot. You know, I, you know they have um, you know, almost 50,000 tech workers in Seattle. They have like you know, thousands in other parts of the country, overseas as well, of course. And so those workers are, of course, very well rewarded because, you know, there's a, a sort of, you know, shortage of talent within the tech industry. Everyone's competing, you know, trying to hire and retain like the, the best and the brightest and all of that stuff. But the sort of disconnect between that and, you know, the, 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 the pay and the, you know, particularly the working conditions within the warehouses, you did that, you have actually had incidents of Amazon tech workers in Seattle being fired for the offense of speaking out uh, about the working conditions uh, mm. within the warehouses. And I actually have a friend who was uh, uh, Tim Bray, who's a very well-known uh, Amazon uh, engineer. I mean, you know, very well-known in tech circles in general. And he, he resigned in protest at the firing of tech workers who had been sacked for, for speaking out about the warehouse conditions. And he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times explaining why he resigned. You know, even although he, he personally found Amazon absolutely wonderful place to work, you know, because he worked on the Amazon uh, cloud uh, part of it, you know, and you just have the best facilities and the smartest people. Um, but, but yes, I mean, that, you, you're right. I mean, your comment gets to, I think, like, you know, how they view it, that, you know, unions have a role to play in other industries and other workplaces, but not at Amazon. Uh, Alden, you have a final question? Yeah, um, I guess if I were a manager at Amazon, it would occur to my, my thinking would be thus. Um, We've got an awful lot of people out there doing basically manual labor. If mm -hmm. I understand, yeah, yeah, they're picking, yeah. they're going, finding yeah, picking, packing, the yeah, thing yeah. that you ordered, 
taking it over and putting it yeah. somewhere on a truck. So yeah. if, if I'm smart, I'm going to figure out a way to automate that. And right. I'm not going to need those workers. Yep. Now, damn it, if I've got a union, they're going to prevent that because they're going to want to keep those yep. jobs. Yep. So my theory would be, I don't want a union because right. I want to... I want to be able to automate. Pretty soon when I've got 800 people there, I want to have two yep. and a huge computer. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's undoubtedly probably part of the thinking. But, you know, the thing is, Amazon warehouses, I've been in a few of them, um, they're already incredibly high tech. You know, they have those Kiva, you know, they, I mean, they have all of the latest technology. Um, and... The actual, uh, the, the, the reverse side of that is, um, you know, that has created a few very um, high-skilled, high-tech jobs within the workplaces. But for the vast bulk of the workers, the work compared with, uh, and people have written about this and it's sort of documented, but it's true. I'm, I mean, I'm convinced it's true. Compared with other big warehouse employers, who don't have Amazon's technology, most of the work is actually lower skilled work now, you know, because the technology does most of the work, you know, and so what's left, you know, unless you're actually, you know, in charge of <clears throat> programming the robots and, you know, repairing them and making sure everything is smoothly, if you're just one of the drawings, you know, the pickers and packers, your work, your work is actually probably less skilled in an Amazon warehouse than it is in another large warehouse facility that has lower tech than, than Amazon does. Um, but like I said, I mean, honestly, this is not just some, you know, I don't mean it's not political correctness, but if you were to listen to these, um, you know, the workers who organize the Amazon labor union, they have really, really smart people within that warehouse. And, you know, I think they misjudged the election in a number of different ways. I don't think they fully realized who their own workforce was. And I don't think they realized how their workforce has been changed as a result of working through the pandemic. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, John, for coming on. It's been really great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And... Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. I apologize if I went on too long. No, no, it was oh, and, uh, oh, it was great. It's great. All right, yeah. we'll see Terrific. everybody. Okay. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That was John Logan, a professor of labor and employment studies in the College of Business at San Francisco State University. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>